Welcome to the Gorefine Schiller and Garden podcast series. Today is part one of a two-part podcast series where Chuck Fonts, Director of Business Valuation and Litigation Support at Gorefine Schiller and Garden, is speaking with Jeff Sands, the Managing Principal of Dorset Partners, LLC. Jeff is a corporate turnaround specialist who has won multiple awards from the Turnaround Management Association. Both Chuck and Jeff will be diving deep into a wide range of topics when it comes to distressed businesses and valuation in this series. For this episode, they will be highlighting multiple turnaround strategies, the impact of baby boomer entrepreneurs looking to exit from their businesses, and much more. And Chuck and Jeff, how are you both doing today? Doing well, thanks, Matt. We're doing very well. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. I know we have a lot to cover today, and this is a fascinating topic. And one of the most fascinating things really is Jeff and your background. So if you don't mind, Jeff, tell us what is a corporate turnaround expert and how did you get into this line of work? So thank you, Matt. A corporate turnaround expert is somebody who fixes troubled businesses, you know, at the extreme end, fixes really chaotic situations that are kind of imploding. And at the calmer end, we'll give businesses a tune-up, help them stay out of trouble, and help them stay on the right path. I got into the business. My first two turnarounds were my own company, our family manufacturing business. And I suddenly realized with an economics degree and an MBA, no one ever taught me anything about fixing a business or running it on cash. And it's been quite a learning curve over the last 16 years. Wow. It's a fascinating line of business that you're in. I imagine you've dealt with some pretty challenging, chaotic situations that you walked into and had to deal with, especially when it comes to distressed businesses. And if you don't mind, give us some examples of some of the stuff that you've done in this line of work. Yeah, there certainly are the chaotic ones. There was one a couple of years ago where the FBI was prosecuting three felonies. The business had been run into the ground. The revenues had shrunk from $45 million to $10 million. And then the largest remaining customer pulled out. There was a suicide, and I was in there the next day running everything. And we were able to stitch it all back together. Today, that company's everybody's employed. They're rebuilding a revenue base and doing fantastically. Another paper mill recently was three weeks from closing. So all the customers had left months before. The suppliers had left. The entire forestry infrastructure had been basically sold off. And we had a little bit of inventory and no cash and bought the mill for a dollar and rebuilt it with no cash, just basically cycling my inventory. Oh, there's uh, lots of stuff like that, lots of chaotic situations. And it brings, unfortunately, stress brings out the worst in people, as you well know. But at the other end, we once dealt with a uh, most wonderful couple in the world. They own a ambulance service and funeral home, which I guess is a vertically integrated company. And no crisis, but for 30 years, they were consistently out of cash, probably once a month. They had to call the bank. The commercial lender had to you know, overextend them on their credit line so they could make payroll. And it was just a fire drill every month. And the banker had to go to his boss. And you know, it's something they were tired of. So they called me and we worked with the business owners and essentially got uh, shrunk their cash cycle by two weeks, got a week faster payment, a week slower on payables. And they've never had an overdraft again. And the bank and everybody's happy. So sometimes it's just a little tune up like that, that you know, you got to keep the bank happy if you do that. Everything else seems to work pretty well. Wow. Fascinating insights there, Jeff. Really appreciate that. And, you know, Chuck, let's flip it to you. So, you know, if Jeff was called into one of your clients' businesses, you know, what would you be thinking? How would you go about dealing with it? Well, the first thing I'd be thinking is, I hope I get paid. <laughs> but, but seriously, typically by the time a turnaround expert is brought in, companies are pretty deep into whatever their problems are, as Jeff just went through some of those 
scenarios. And I've seen it happen certainly more times than I'd like. I've had clients who I've helped to understand that they're either headed in the wrong direction or they're already in a bad place. And they've acknowledged that, but they were nonetheless, for whatever reason, unwilling or unable to make the changes that needed to be made soon enough. And that's unfortunate because, you know, companies whose managers recognize and acknowledge the signs of trouble and then get help earlier rather than later, they have a much better chance of successful recovery. And I think that there are miracle workers like Jeff, but the fewer miracles one needs in a lifetime, probably the better off one is. But what I've found is the causes of trouble that lead companies into this situation, they tend to fall into one or both of two categories, either problems with management on the one hand or challenging circumstances on the other hand. And so Problems with management include things like, I mean, simple stuff, just operating without a plan or a lack of operating control. Sometimes it's an inability of management to adapt the business to a changing market. And sometimes it's ownership dynamics, particularly in family-held firms where the family, for whatever reason, various and sundry reasons, just can't get along. Just going back, operating without a plan and in proper financial controls, I'll say that businesses under $10 million in revenues, I bet two-thirds, three-quarters don't have a budget from what I've seen. Tell me what you've seen. I'd say up to $50 million in revenues. Gosh, even, you know, half or 40% are not operating with a budget and or maybe operating with a lame budget that's not really effective. But, you know, take $50 million revenue businesses, which are pretty big, you know, three, 400 employees. It's amazing how many are just bumping around in the dark, hoping that the good luck continues and they're not, they don't have a firm grasp. So it's not surprising they get into trouble. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I kind of say that all the time, actually. It's amazing to me. So I'm an engineer with an MBA, and so I like everything in its place and a place for everything. It is remarkable to me how frequently companies operate without a plan. I mean, that's one of, when I do valuations, one of my standard requests is budgets and projections. And the vast majority of the time, I just get crickets there. They just don't have them, which is, you know, for really small companies, it's one thing, not a good idea, maybe, but not completely surprising. But when you get up to the company's 50 million or even more in revenue, and they're still operating without a plan yet. That's a little surprising to me still after 20 plus years of doing this. Right. And nothing good comes of not planning. I mean, maybe maybe you save a couple hours, but God, it's just such a poor use of time. Yeah, or of not using the time. Sure. I think the saying is true. You know, if you fail to plan, you might as well plan to fail. I mean, hope and luck are not strategy. And it's just a risky way to run the business, particularly if you get confronted with the second category of things that tend to cause trouble for companies. And those are, you know, challenging circumstances. So even good management, if confronted with challenging circumstances, it can be difficult. And, you know, those things, that includes things like companies that maybe aren't focused enough and are over-diversified in one way or another, or the opposite of that, companies that have high customer concentration, like the company that you mentioned from one of your particularly chaotic situations where the biggest customer walked away, which made a bad situation a, you know, close to a disaster. And a third thing, maybe not intuitive, but a third thing that's a challenging circumstance, I suspect you've seen this as well, Jeff, is actually really fast growth. Seems like that would be an unalloyed good, but really fast growth creates challenges of its own, and if not managed properly, can lead to trouble. So, but as it turns out, whether it's regardless of which category it falls in, whether it's problems with management or challenging circumstances, 
frequently, by the time a company has gotten into a bad situation, the management has to change because whether it's the bank or the employees or whoever, if they've lost faith to one degree or another in the existing management, in order to salvage any operating value from the company, you know, the, that company is going to need new management. And arguably, that's where somebody like Jeff, the turnaround specialist, comes in. And you can speak to this more directly with your experience, Jeff, but when you come in, you have to determine, obviously, whether the business can survive. And if you think it can, you have to come up with some strategies and then develop a preliminary action plan. And Yeah, you know, let's talk a little bit about mismanagement and kind of the surprise, which goes back to, I think, budgeting. If management sees the problems developing and acts on, then you probably don't have a problem, right? Things probably get fixed. If management sees it and doesn't act sufficiently, then the problem lingers. At some point, it trips covenants with the bank, which are quite lagging, usually a trailing 12 months debt service coverage ratio. So you can go 12 months without, in theory, without it setting up a red flare at your bank. Once the bank says, hey, there's trouble here, the next question is, what's management done? And if management says, oh, yeah, well, you know, we don't budget, we don't have good tracking, we're not really on our game, then at that moment, all the credibility is out. The bank, the credit committee at the bank says, these folks don't know how to run a business. They can't be trusted with our money. They didn't respect us or our money. And at that point, they're looking for somebody else to come in and either advise or take over. You know, and I've done both. But that's the turning point. And, you know, a very poorly run company without debt can probably just be poorly run forever. But it's debt and the rub with the bank that ultimately gets people in trouble. My first turnaround, I hated, resented the bank. Just I thought the worst thoughts possible for about 24 hours. And then I realized, you know, at least somebody's pushing my face in it, making me deal with my issues, making me grow up and act like an adult about this. And inherently, they're right. And I remember my dad saying, you might not like what the bank's saying, but they're smart people and they're probably right and we're probably wrong and we got to figure out where the disagreement is. So as an entrepreneur, once the bank gets involved, that's the signal to an entrepreneur that you screwed up, you weren't paying enough attention and you got to move quick. And the good thing about banks is they move very slow, they're cumbersome, they have meetings forever, they have infinite levels of bureaucracy. An agile entrepreneur can outchange and outhustle a bank and they'll never really bother you because they can't keep up. But boy, the entrepreneur that sits in the middle of the road and shimmies back and forth kind of like a squirrel that can't make up its mind just gets absolutely clobbered in these situations. So that first, how an entrepreneur reacts at the first kind of hit of things are changing has a bigger influence than anything else and has a bigger influence than any financial factor. An entrepreneur with no money but dialed in can save their business. An entrepreneur with money who's not dialed in will eventually not have money and will lose their business. It's incredible after all these years of doing it how much of a mental psychological game it is and how little of it is spreadsheet analysis. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. The math is relatively easy. It's the people that are difficult, for sure. Um, uh, <laughs> our, our old joke is this turnarounds are 50% financial, 50% operational, and 50% psychological. <laughs> it's that last 50% that everything depends on. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, change is... is hard for anybody. And that's actually, I mean, from 
evaluation perspective, that's the challenge from evaluation perspective is by definition, the future has to be different from the past if you want to get some value out of this company that is either headed for or or already in trouble. And that makes it a challenge because in a typical valuation, you can look at the history and while it's not determinative, it is helpful in terms of trying to understand what you might be able to expect going forward. But uh, Mm -hmm. in a troubled company situation, that's specifically not the case. And the work that folks like you, Jeff, do, or the entrepreneur who, like you said, is dialed in and realizes that something needs to change, the work that is done in that regard to determine, you know, revenues may have looked like this in the past, but now they're going to look like that going forward. And profits, lack of profits may have looked like this in the past, but we're going to do these several things to change it and improve the profits going forward. And we're going to look at the way we make capital expenditures or whatever element of the business that it is, or elements, plural, typically, that need to change from what was the way it was done in the past to the way it was done in the future. That's what determines, you know, how folks like me come up with the values that we come up with if it requires, you know, for instance, if they're going to need to raise capital, you know, that's a hurdle that we have to get over is supporting not so much how the future is going to be different than the past, but why it's reasonable to expect that it will be, the future will mm-hmm. be different. From- yep. Great. Did you guys want to talk a little bit about the baby boomer entrepreneurs? Yeah, that's something that Chuck and I have talked a little bit about, and I find fascinating, primarily because the baby boomers are a generation above me. Everybody knows, and it's been in the press, that this will be the greatest transfer of generational wealth in the history of the universe, primarily just because you have this enormous demography of folks in the baby boomer years, and then also you had a, a lot of entrepreneurs in that age group that started businesses in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And everybody knows they have to transition. There's only three ways to transition a business, basically gift it or sell it or close it. And obviously, most of these entrepreneurs want to be able to gift it to children or be able to sell it. And I've seen, and Chuck, I don't know what you've seen, but I've seen the press has talked about it a lot, but it just hasn't really hit. And I think a part of its timing, you know, 08, 09 just wiped the value out of company. Entrepreneurs, and you know, so my example, let's just take an entrepreneur with a business doing $10 million of uh, EBITDA at the end of the year consistently. You know, you can get a five times multiple on that based on your industry and the environment, but it's easy to be sitting there with a $50 million business thinking everything's great. 09 happens. Every business I saw in 09 was down 30% in the first six months. You know, all of a sudden you're not making a profit. You get a multiple of zero and essentially you're looking at asset value for your business, which is horrible. And we've had a 10-year run here of growth. The recession statistically is overdue. We know it'll all come. And I'm afraid as a buyer, I'm okay with it because there's going to be a lot of good deals. But, you know, as a citizen, I look at all these baby boomer entrepreneurs and they're at a peak valuation right now. And at some point, the economy is going to shift. And I think the world's going to shift underneath them. And to be 72 and all of a sudden now your business that was worth a ton last year is not worth anything. And you got another five years before it might be able to claw back. It's going to be an enormous shock and difficult thing to work through for you know a couple million entrepreneurs, I imagine, and we'll have a big. Those of us in the middle market will have a big impact on valuations and really on everything in what we do. And Chuck, I assume you're seeing it somewhere. A hundred percent. It's so I do some work trying to help folks either 
buy companies or sell companies. And, you know, on a semi-regular basis, I'm trying to convince business owners to just at least contemplate the possibility. And most of the time, it's just something, it's almost like they want to put their hands over their ears and they just don't want to hear it. And it's that last 50% of psychology that Jeff mentioned in a turnaround situation. I think it's a similar kind of a thing with getting business owners to front exiting their businesses. So yeah, convincing people to consider the possibility of exiting their business is just sometimes something that they don't want to hear. And it's unfortunate for exactly the reasons that Jeff mentioned. Things could be going along fine and you know they could have an idea of what the business might be worth. But if the recession, which Jeff correctly stated statistically is overdue, when that hits, you know, all of a sudden, both sides of the value equation take a hit. You know, if cash flows go down and risk goes up, which makes multiples go down, lower cash flows and lower multiples is going to result in a lower value. And all of a sudden, the retirement plan that owners thought they had isn't the retirement plan that they're going to end up with. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very true. I mean, I just, you know, a simple without any sort of stretches, you got a company producing 10 million in EBITDA. It's normally that industry is a five times multiple. Maybe it's up to seven now because everything's so throthy and you have all these trillions of dollars and private equity looking for investments. You know, a modest recession, not even 08, 09, a modest recession comes back, knocks the EBITDA in half and brings the multiple down two turns, you go from 70 million valuation to 25. And depending on your debt structure, that might be it. There might be nothing left over for the owners. And we've all seen it turn that fast. And we all know it'll turn that fast again. I've got an entrepreneur that I know who I talked to about buying his business. I thought we got pretty close. One night he sat down and did the math and he said, hold on, my business is worth more in liquidation. Just my assets alone are worth more than what you're offering me, which was a modest multiple on earnings. And I thought about it. I said, you're right. But unfortunately, that shows us how poorly you're running your business, that you're not deriving enough value out of your assets every day to even make it worth more than your assets. And, you know, it's like having a logging operation and you can't figure out how to get any more value out of your chainsaw than your chainsaw just sitting there, stable on the ground. So he went back and thought about it and came to me and said, okay, so here's my retirement plan. I'm 72. I'm just going to work it until I die and or get sick. If I'm in control, I'll call you. If I die suddenly, my wife will call you and just promise me that you'll keep the jobs and you'll keep the business going. And that's a smart guy who's had his business for 45 years and I have gobs of respect for and that's his retirement plan his wife's going to call me if he gets hit by a bus and i think there's a lot of that in in that generation i guess there's a lot of that in all generations but this is a big one so it kind of stands out also because we're on a topic of value when a company gets really distressed then it does immediately everybody looks at asset value and what can we liquidate this for we call it an auctioneer you know how's the bank get their money back and amazingly so if you take a business once the phone stops ringing it's worth the auction value of the equipment, basically. But while the phones ring, there's still going concern value, which Chuck can tell us it's unquantifiable largely, but there's something there. And we've taken a lot of businesses that were literally like, we can't afford payroll on Friday, figured out how to fund payroll, figured out how to keep just 
alive enough for a month to hold a super fast expedited auction, get the competitors, get the industry people involved, bring in a strategic or two, and we can often sell business for two, three, four times what the asset values would be only because we just gave a CPR for four weeks in between, which is amazing to me, obviously something they never teach you in school, and the fact that you can swing value four times in a distress situation just by doing CPR just, I guess, still amazes me to this day. And the better thing is then you have a business that survives, you have a tax base, you have an employer, you have jobs, you have a community. And I won't carry on on this tangent, but as much as I think the U.S. has some of the best bankruptcy laws in the world, it's interesting the community doesn't have a vote. And if the manager can't figure it out and the bank doesn't really care because they can just have an auction, the business disappears and all the wonderful things that come from a business go away with it. And unfortunately, that's what we've seen across you know, the rust belt of the U.S. The workers in the communities didn't have a vote. And it's an unnecessary carnage. And as a former entrepreneur and now turnaround specialist, it just it hurts me to see it because it's a waste and it's part of our national treasure that we lose with each closing. And I, I won't you be know, too you, soapboxy about that. Well, but you make a good point. Put aside the soapbox aspect of it. Two of the so I do valuations when one company buys another. The accounting rules say you have to value the thing that the acquiring company bought, which is mostly not what you would get if you liquidated the company, you know, the desks, chairs, and computers. Mostly, it's intangible stuff. And all uh, the two things that, Yeah, all the goodwill, but called by specific names, because goodwill is kind of amorphous. But there's two things specifically, as you were talking, Jeff, that occurred to me. Keeping the phones ringing goes arguably to the issue of customer relationships, which there's new rules now that say most of the time you don't value those, which I think is a real shame because customer relationships tend to be one of the three usual suspects of intangible, specific intangible assets that are acquired when one company buys another and customer relationships tend to be the largest intangible asset. And as long as the phone is ringing, that means people are still, customers are still thinking of that company. When the phone stops ringing, that means those customers aren't thinking of the company anymore. Those customer relationships, mm -hmm. are they're like a cloud. They don't last very long. The other thing that occurred to me as you were talking about, the loss to the community, another thing, another intangible asset that gets valued in those circumstances when one company buys another is the notion of an assembled workforce. The fact that you, and it's sort of like the flip side of the ringing phone. As long as you have customers right. calling on the one hand and people to service the customers who call on the other, you got a business. And assembling those things from scratch is costly and time-consuming. So to the extent that you can buy those things already in place, that saves time and money for the buyer. But both of them are very transient, maybe is one way to put it. If you don't tend to them, they can disappear, maybe not quite overnight, but pretty close to overnight. Like you said, if you could administer CPR for that one month and keep the customer relationships in place and enough of the assembled workforce in place to maintain the customer relationships, you know, now there's a reason why a buyer would pay two, three, four times book value because they're getting these intangible things that are difficult to build from scratch. This is a wrap of part one of our two-part podcast series where Chuck Fonts, Director of Business Valuation and Litigation Support at Gorefine Schiller & Garden, spoke with Jeff Sands, the Managing Principal of Dorset Partners, LLC. And stay tuned for our second podcast where we run through multiple turnaround scenarios, the salvation process, friendly foreclosures, and much more.